0: Welcome to episode 40 of the Do Care podcast. This is a podcast about topics related to queer, intersectional, ecofeminism, and artistry, or just any one of those adjectives. It's what we care about. And when I say we, that's myself, Georgie Corkery, one of your co-hosts, pronouns she, they, and our other co-host. That's me, Mary McGee, also (laughs) she, they pronouns. Today, the topic of this episode is workplace justice, and we have Dr. Christy Glass to talk about that with us. Dr. Christy Glass is a professor of sociology at Utah State University. That's where I'm a grad student right now. That's how I know about Christy. And her teaching and research focuses on workplace justice. Hi, Christy.
1: Hi, Mary, Georgie.
0: Thank you for having me. (laughs) So excited to have you on. Will you share with us really quick your pronouns? My pronouns are she, her. Awesome. Thank you so much. To start off our episodes, we like to go over something short and simple of what do we care about? This is the Do Care podcast. So Mary, I'll ask you first, what do you care about? Oh, no. (laughs) We just lost Mary. (laughs) I'll go first. (laughs) Something that I do care about is reproductive rights and abortion being health care. I think that's really important. Christy, how about you?
1: Here, here. I care about the cats, all the cats. (laughs) And I care about right now, I'm thinking a lot about my beloved community and the folks in our community that are really struggling and suffering because of the state of the world.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of wars going on. Yeah. The first icebreaker that we have is talking about cats that we've interacted with recently. Christy, have you interacted with any cats?
1: Yes. I took a nap with my cat Mugsy today. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I tried to nap with my cat Mugsy. He napped. I thought about all the work I still have to do. But yes, not a day goes by that I don't interact with cats.
0: Nice. <laughs> That's good. That's very lucky. I'm interacting more and more with one cat named Sushka, because I'm spending a lot of time with her human, whose name is Misha. (laughs) And that's it for cats that I've been seeing, but it's a whole lot of Sushka, so I'm happy about that. Mm. (laughs) A reminder for listeners, the reason why we talk about the cats we've interacted with recently is because thinking about cute things brings serotonin to us and i think that's really important and if people listening to this podcast can feel happier because i'm flooding them with serotonin because they're thinking about cats that that's good that's good in my book and the next icebreaker is what wildlife have you seen recently and this is important to us because we need to connect more with our environment and thinking about the wildlife we see is one of the easiest ways to do that
1: Yes. Well, unfortunately, it's been a long time since I was in the wild. So I'll unfortunately have to count my cat Mugsy as my wildlife as well. <laughs> I, I, I read, you probably know more about this than I do, Georgie, but I read that cats, unlike dogs, have not really evolved to be domesticated. They pretend that they are domesticated, but... The difference between my cat Mugsy and wildcats? Is- yeah,
0: it's not very different, and they have a lot of the same behaviors, which I think is interesting. Yeah, so I'll count Mugsy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, that works. That works for me. I also haven't been outside that much. With the exception: I did some field work recently at Hardware. What was Hardware Ranch, but now it's Hardware Wildlife Management Area, and they do these sleigh rides through elk herds. They put out all this hay and. I, I don't know how I feel about that because they're concentrating these animals in one area. But they're feeding them through the winter and then doing these sleigh rides through. And it's about 45 minutes. And the the sleigh drivers, they will share facts and talk about elk for 40 That's minutes. Great. I went and I was doing surveys there. So I just got to see all of these elk. And on the way out of there, I saw about 50 turkeys, 50 wild oh. turkeys. Yeah. At first, there was three crossing the street. And I was like, Wow wild turkeys and i looked up on the hill and i was like wow there's 10 and then we were continuing to drive and i was like oh wow there are over 50 wild turkeys right here amazing that's
1: magical yeah i took my niece and nephew to hardware ranch back in the day and they could not have been less interested (laughs) i on the other hand was fascinated by the elk that's
0: funny it's a preserver it's a wildlife management area i can't tell you much more than the name of the designation which is that WMA is what it's referred to often. So that's that's my wildlife. Along with deer. I've been oh, seeing yeah. a lot of deer in the neighborhoods, which I like because it's like, ooh, magical, and I don't like because I'm afraid they're gonna get hit.
1: Yep. So Absolutely.
0: Our last icebreaker, conscious content consumption. The reason why I started doing this when I started the podcast forty episodes ago. Can't wow. believe we're at episode forty. Is because there's all this media coming at us, whether it's the news, whether it's what we see on social media, whether it's the TV and the movies that we grew up with and how they shape what we think about gender norms or how relationships should be conducted. What is a healthy relationship? What amount of sexual activity is expected or not okay? Which for women, no matter how much or little, it seems like the wrong amount, but... (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I wanna talk about conscious content consumption is something that you think has shaped the way you think in a good way, in a positive way, or that was really good for you. I'll I'll let you go first, Christy.
1: Yeah, my mom recommended a book to me, Asia Barbers Consumed, which is a book just Mm. about consumption and what we're doing in our daily life when we're consuming mainly clothing. Yeah. And I've long been strong advocate for thrift, and this book just re- really reinforced it. To your point, I think most media is built to convince us to buy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and our obsession with buying things is destroying our planet and our relationships with workers and our yeah. relationship to ourselves. And so just being more conscious about What consumption is, what it does, this has really been something I've been thinking about a lot.
0: Yeah, I definitely went through a phase of my life of, I'm not going to buy anything new. And that's hard because we live in a society that's built for us to buy new things all the time. Just like we live in a society that's built for us to drive everywhere. It shouldn't be on the individuals, but we actually have a lot of power when it comes to whether or not we're going to go buy a bunch of stuff at Forever 21 and then throw it away next week. And clothes, it, that's like the funnest thing to go thrift. So, yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> I'm convinced that if none, if there was never another pair of jeans manufactured, we have plenty of jeans for all the humans.
0: <laughs> yeah. And even if a pair doesn't fit somebody, there's tailors out there. Yep. yep, yep. <laughs> there's material out there. Yeah. That's. That's how I feel about silverware.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. there's so
0: much silverware out there. Yeah. So go thrift shopping. That's mm-hmm. cool. I haven't heard of that book. It Makes me want to read it to reinvigorate my uh, It's my good and it's really
1: accessible. It engages questions of colonialism and big questions that we often don't think about when we're going to a store to buy stuff.
0: Yeah. I will have to read it and I'll link it in the show notes. Cool. Mary, are you back on?
2: Oh my God. Yeah.
0: Hi, I'm back. <laughs> Hi, Mary. Cool. Well, uh, we just talked about Christy's conscious content consumption, and Ooh. I was going to dive into mine really quick. I would love to hear about it. Okay. I'm pretty sure, Mary, I've told you about this, but it is a novel called Enterghost. A new 2023 novel by Isabella Hamad that follows actress Sonia as she returns to Palestine and takes a role in a West Bank production of Hamlet. She is returning from London to Hafif to visit her older sister, Hanin. This is her first trip back since the Second Intifada and the deaths of her grandparents. She meets somebody called Miriam, who is this charismatic, candid character, the local director, who ropes her into this production of Hamlet, and it's performed in Arabic. I started reading this book probably a month before Hamas. After genocide? Yeah, that event. And so I started getting really interested in like, oh, what's, like, I don't know much about Palestine and Israel, And I mean, Gaza, but Gaza, it's not part of this book, but that was the land, the backdrop of this book. And then I thought about you, Mary, because Sonia, she's an actor doing play acting and their take on Hamlet was really interesting. It's It's so fascinating to have the use of Hamlet in that
2: story. Yeah. And like the political upheaval and the family dynamics of that. I think that would be such an interesting metaphor. And in Arabic, how beautiful. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's called Enter Ghost because it's like Enter Hamlet, stage left. Enter Ghost, stage right. Um, I don't know if that's Mm. actually said in Hamlet, but that (laughs) you know where I'm going with that. I Um, do. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so fascinated by that and
2: like what the ghost means, especially the ghost is. I mean, Hamlet's father is the ghost. You have to read it. (laughs) I want to take take your. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I want
0: to hear your take on it for sure, Mary.
2: I've also been really trying to consciously consume. A lot of Palestinian art mm-hmm. and resources mm-hmm. just I feel like it's so prescient.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. Yeah,
2: there's active genocides mm-hmm. happening that you have to bear witness mm-hmm. to the people and stories and art that's happening in a world with no power. All we have is our voice and our community and our hearts and. I know. Sometimes all you can do is just read art about it.
0: Mm. Yeah. One <laughs> review that I wanted to read of this book, in case you're not already hooked, is, quote, A stunning rendering of present-day Palestine, Enter Ghost, is a story of dysphoria, displacement, and the connection to be found in family and shared resistance. Timely, thoughtful, and passionate, Isabella Hamad's highly anticipated novel is an exquisite feat, an unforgettable story of artistry under occupation.
1: Mm. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I highly,
0: highly recommend it. And yeah, it just came out in 2023. Mm. (laughs) Mary, Mm. do you want to jump in as we delicately switch topics to the cats you've interacted with? (laughs) (laughs) I've been surrounded by so many
2: cats. Notably, there's been this slew of tuxedo cats in my neighborhood. Mm. I've seen like five individual tuxedos. They're just running around the streets, hanging out. Sometimes we hang out on the grass and, and, and say hi. It's been lovely. I'm becoming really well acquainted with my neighborhood cats.
1: <laughs> Love tuxedo cats.
0: A tuxedo cat is just a black cat or? Black and white. Like white. Oh, okay. Very fancy. So it looks They're like it has boys. a little uh, a suit, a tuxedo on. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, very cute. And neighborhood cats, they rock. It's so yeah. nice to get to know neighborhood cats. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was walking down the street and I saw this. I
2: heard a cat actually. And I whipped around. We locked eyes, me and this cat. And we we're like eh, eh, eh. <laughs> And then the cat leapt down like oh. three flights of stairs. Whoa. And then we just at each other for a bit. And then I walked away. It was just a whole thing. It was beautiful.
1: I love it. We moved we moved neighborhoods and we were so sad to leave the old neighborhood cats. But you get na- so used to them. Yeah, you get so I mean we had we had a whole crew. Mm-hmm. But now we've learned different areas of our new neighborhood, So we have names, like when we're going on a walk, it's like, do you want to go down Kitty Cat Alley or <laughs> Stray Corner, which <laughs> so cute. Named, named our walks after the <laughs> varieties of cats we made.
0: I love that. Well, let's dive into it. I have a little thing I was going to read about you, but yeah, let's see where this takes us. Dr. Glass's research focuses on workplace justice, as we mentioned at the top, analyzing the ways in which gender and race shape access, and mobility in professional work organizations. With Allison mm. Cook, she, you, have pioneered work on the glass cliff and the impact of representation of organizational practice. She teaches courses on work and labor, social inequity, and gender and sexuality. Do you want to <laughs> elaborate on that?
2: I, I have follow-up questions right away, actually. <laughs> One what is your relationship to Allison Cook? What does Glass Cliff mean? Tell me everything.
1: Sure, sure. Allie Cook is the greatest human being that's ever walked the earth. If you don't know her, you should. She's a faculty member in the Huntsman School of Business at Utah State, but don't hold that against her. <laughs> and we met her second year, my first year at Utah State, and we've been working together ever since. The glass cliff is the idea or the theory that when white women or men and men or women of color are promoted to really visible leadership roles, it tends to be in organizations that are in crisis or at risk to fail. Mm. So it's the idea that you finally get, say, the first black CEO, but that black ceo is being appointed during a time of crisis and is expected to steer the organization out of the crisis. Beautiful. Yeah, so it's we call it the glass cliff because they're kind of set up to fail. Hmm. They're kind yeah. of appointed but pushed off the glass cliff, you know, a cliff in terms yeah. of like being a leader and so it turns out if they're not able to turn the organization around or solve the crisis, they tend they're to surely be surely demonized. Yeah, they tend to be blamed. For the crisis that actually predated their leadership and replaced by a white man. We call this the savior Mm. effect. It's Mm. like, well, we tried
0: that, didn't work out, and and now we're going back to the status quo. Or maybe the company goes under. Yeah. And it's like, well, some people will probably point to it and be like, see, we hired a black woman. This is white. (laughs) And look what happened. Yeah. How
2: bad it was. Exactly. I think, don't quote me on this, but that Oregon Shakespeare Festival had a recent artistic director, a black woman, and then there was some big hullabaloo and she was ousted and mm-hmm. that it reminds me of what you're talking about. Yeah. It feels like such an easy thing to say, oh, well, obviously it's because it's a black woman. Yep.
1: yep. Black I think person. we're seeing this. It's a with
2: color. It's a woman.
1: Yep. I'm watching the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, right yeah, now. Yeah, that's and exactly
0: what I was thinking about.
1: intense scrutiny she's receiving For failing to solve anti-Semitism on a campus that was built on anti-Semitism, right? Mm -hmm. And this is playing out kind of in a textbook way. The scrutiny, the performance pressure, everything she says and does is being scrutinized in the press right now. There's calls for her
0: resignation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a lot of pressure that suddenly she has to solve. Yep. And that's not necessarily her job. And well, and look at she where she came from and yep. look at where this school came from. Yep, Christy, could you go over how you came into this academic world as someone who focuses on workplace justice? What did that look like? How did you land here?
1: Really good question. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, which is at least part of the story. Flint, Michigan is is kind of the birth of the auto industry and also the birth of the UAW, the United Auto Workers. Flint is the home of the famous great Flint sit-down strike, which was kind of a watershed moment in American labor history. I grew up there, my mom was part of the Great Migration. She migrated from the south to Flint to work in the factory as a teenager and worked in Chevy Engine plant until she retired in her sixties. And my aunt my mom went to work in the factory, my aunt went to work for the UAW. And so I actually grew up my aunt across her career with the UAW was trying to build historical commemoration of the great Flint sit hmm. down strike. And so I grew up around that. Yeah. And I went to grad school. I was a first gen student. I went to grad school at Yale and felt so out of place. I just felt it wasn't just feeling like a fraud, it was feeling like this place wasn't built for people like me. Mm. And so out of that, I ended up becoming part of a nationwide grad student union movement. I organized the union at Yale for several years. The union just signed its first contract this week.
0: Oh, wow. uh, I know that it (laughs) it was in the news that it just has never signed a contract. So that's cool.
1: Yeah. So I was being socialized into academia through the union. And Hmm. so given my background and that really transformative experience in grad school, for me, understanding sociology was through the lens of work and labor and, yeah. and how we access good work and who has access to good work and what that means.
0: Yeah. Workplace justice. That, yeah. <laughs> that makes yeah. a lot of sense.
2: Can you speak to some of the issues marginalized individuals are experiencing in the workforce
1: Absolutely. You know, I think of work in in kind of stages, right? Recruitment hiring, who is being recruited and hired and why Mm. and under what conditions. Mm -hmm. What happens when you get there in terms of how your performance is evaluated, in terms of how your competence is is perceived? And then who is promoted? What does the promotion process look like? Mm. And so I've studied each of these processes at different points from the perspective of gender and race. I have an ongoing series of studies right now working with a team of researchers at at Utah State, trans and non-binary workers, access to work, what happens when they get there, access to promotion. And yeah, it's really predictable. The patterns that we (laughs) see are really predictable and not at all surprising for anybody who's a member of a marginalized group or who thinks about these things in any kind of critical way. So I spent many years interviewing employers about how they recruit and hire. And I remember this was early on in my career and people were saying, you know, you can't actually talk to employers. They won't actually tell you why they discriminate. They won't admit to it. Yeah, (laughs) But I actually found the employers for highly skilled jobs, they were so confident that the ways they discriminate are rational. Hmm. They felt so righteous about it that they were actually willing to talk to me about why they do it and why it makes sense. Would this be like Lawyers and doctors or engineers and CEOs? Yes, all the yeah. things. So employers in the finance sector, global finance and
2: business services.
1: So law, tech. You know, like you what,
2: what are some of the things they're saying?
1: Yeah. So at the time, I was really interested in how employers think about parenthood
0: in yeah. terms of recruiting mm. and hire. That was going to be one of my guesses. Like, yeah. oh, well, she's going to have to take time <laughs> off because she's a mom yep. and she breastfeeds. Yep.
1: Yep. I mean, you just, you just, I, more than any other research experience, I had to learn how to fix my face because I would be sitting across (laughs) the table from somebody who's saying, you know, look, once a woman has a baby, it's like her brain. Just can't focus on work anymore. <laughs> like she's oh my god can't take her seriously. And if she takes time off, then all she's thinking about now are changing diapers and breastfeeding. Wow. And you know this is a high powered industry. We can't have
0: that. You know, I wonder if your face looked like what mine just did. <laughs> That's nuts, nuts. That they actually that rem, that makes me think of Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah. Just entitled to their
1: bigotry and feeling like they're really deeply held bias, and then the discrimination that their action they're taking on that bias is so righteous that Mm -hmm. that they're doing this for the good of the company you know it completely ignoring the loss of
2: talent
0: Mm. yeah
2: there's so much value that you're needlessly overlooking yes because you think that workplace has to look a certain way and can only function in a certain way
1: yeah and so that was looking at it from the employer's perspective and then all the way through to Allie and I spent several years interviewing CEOs who had experienced the glass cliff mm. about the experience of navigating these professional climates as outsiders yeah and and how they negotiate their own belonging in work cultures that don't include them, that weren't built for them.
0: They negotiate them with with themselves internally or with other people being like, hey, no, I actually deserve to be a CEO or president of a company.
1: Yeah, both. So it's interesting. We'd been working on the glass cliff for many years, and we'd been looking at big quantitative data sets and Fortune 500 companies. We'd looked at NCAA coaches, I mean, big data sets over time. And we'd found really clear evidence of of the glass cliff. So we were saying, well, this is a phenomenon. What causes it? Well, who knows? But this is real. And then we started interviewing CEOs who would actually experienced this. And our entire perspective on this phenomenon changed. Because what they told us again and again was, early in my career, I was kind of an up-and-comer in this company. But my visibility was due to being the only black man or the Mm. only Latina woman. And that meant that I was hyper visible as being the only one, but also invisible for things like leadership and as as being a rising star. And so to gain the credibility and legitimacy as a leader, they developed a strategy for very early on in the career, going after the most high risk jobs
0: to prove each one of them. Yeah. Oh, wow. We heard
1: this again and again. We ended up calling this the risk tax, this idea that to be seen as CEO material, as an outsider, you have to prove yourself again and again. And
2: you can't just be good at your job.
0: Yeah. You can't just get the raise because you've been doing well or get the promotion. Which
2: is disgusting because every job I've worked at, there's been some mediocre white man who has excelled
0: off of doing nothing just because he has a
1: penis. Just showing up. Just showing up. Showing (laughs) up and you can bust your ass and no recognition and be overlooked for everything. Yep. Yep. So it dawned on us halfway through this research that we were only talking to the winners, the people who'd survived these like multiple rounds of risk, because every one of them said, I knew that pursuing this risk strategy, if I succeeded, I could get over the hump of just being the only black man. Yeah. And I would be seen as CEO material. If I fail, my entire career would be derailed because I would confirm in everybody's mind that I wasn't smart enough. Mm. I didn't have the competence. I wasn't committed enough.
0: That ultimatum feels so harsh Harsh. Um, because that's not – I mean, well, I'm not sure how I would think about it if I was in that position. But it's like, well, if I make it, that's great. And if I don't, then it's over. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. But also if you make it, you're still always at a risk of
2: crumbling off that Mm -hmm. cliff. You're always – You're not secure. You're never safe. You've killed yourself to be in this impossible position.
1: Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right, Mary. A lot of folks referred to the idea of the one mistake rule. When we talk about the glass cliff or the glass ceiling, the kind of implicit assumption is that once you transcend into these high powered leadership roles, some of that intense scrutiny and pressure goes down because you've made it. Yeah, you know, you're CEO of a fortune 50 company, <laughs> like you have made it. But that's not What these folks, that's not the story they tell. The story they tell is the higher they rose, the more intense the scrutiny.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can see that really clearly with the fact that Obama became president and everyone's like, okay, well, I guess racism's gone now. It's over. But then he was under (laughs) incredible scrutiny and he was articulate and just the way that he just juxtaposed other presidents or like Michelle Obama had a sleeveless dress on and was just, yeah, such a slut. Gave a new meaning to bare arms. (laughs) Sorry, I had to. I stole that from uh, Jimmy Fallon, I think. I love it so much. (laughs) But, yeah, and then we have Ivanka Trump, who has all these nudes, which are... I have nothing against anybody having nudes, no matter how professional they are. But it's like, wow, that... She got almost no scrutiny in comparison to Michelle Obama. She definitely got scrutiny. Yeah. (laughs) To be clear. But...
1: Yeah, Yeah, and so one of the most heartbreaking lessons we came away with was every single person we interviewed said, I'm exhausted, Mm -hmm. I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated, I'm fighting the same battles at 60 that I was fighting at 30. I'm looking for an exit strategy. Allie and I talk about this a lot, that we have this incredible talent pool, folks who have overcome so many odds and have been flawless and have transcended That multiple layers of racism and misogyny and Mm -hmm. and across their careers, and they want out. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we that's so sad. You you look around, it's like, we need the talent, we need that creative problem solving. And yeah, that's a
0: huge waste. Yeah. So you started to talk about the one mistake rule, which I'm sure I could guess what it is, but why don't you explain it?
1: Yeah. It's this idea that when you're an outsider, Everything you do, everything you say, your body, your performance of self is under scrutiny constantly, Hmm. under constant critique and subject to so many negative stereotypes that one mistake can derail you or, or undermine perceptions of your competence. So for example, we talked to a Latina CEO who kept a whole list of words that she would not use when giving public speeches Whoa. because they accentuated her accent.
0: Oh, and she God. was
1: conscious that, that is- her accent would trigger stereotypes of yeah. incompetence. Or we That's talked devastating. to a Yeah, devastating. We talked to a black man CEO, the first black CEO in the entire industry. He was super conscious of when there was going to be a conference meeting, he would get there first. So he was very tall. He'd had a previous career as an athlete. He was hmm. he, His height was kind of imposing. So he would get to the conference room first so he could be sitting. When with, people arrived. Yeah. Ugh. Because he was really conscious of being a very tall black He's like, I'm black already man. black.
0: I don't yep. want to be the yep. big so like, tall guy in the yeah, room, like, too. Trig,
1: especially when he was talking to white women. So, like, triggering the idea of, like, a black man as predator. And yeah. then you think, this is one of the most powerful people In the industry, and he's having to constantly use his body and speech in ways that neutralize certain kinds of negative stereotypes.
0: Yeah, that's wild. And to think, I'm I'm sure the three of us do something like that to some degree, whether that's making sure our hair or our clothes or our buttons or our words or our behavior because we don't want to be seen as um, them, but yeah, yeah I can't. Yeah. yeah, no, in every aspect of your life and editing yourself in real time and mm-hmm. the way you do your hair. And
2: yeah. as someone with naturally curly hair, if it looks a little bit fuzzy or messed up, it's messy and it's unprofessional. And that's always, that has been a huge issue in my life. And it's exhausting. And and it's exhausting. And it's so taxing. Like, I'm not surprised that all these people are burnt out and want to have an exit strategy. That They've burned themselves out. They've mm-hmm. killed themselves and their souls trying to fit into a box that never wanted them. Trying to fit into this white stereotype. Yeah, oh.
1: yeah it's really frustrating. And I always bristle when I hear this lean-in speak, lean-in nonsense mm. speak. This idea like, bring your authentic self to work. You know, bring your whole <laughs> self. And it's like, well, that's a really nice... That's a nice Fantasy. idea,
0: but that would only work for certain, certain people. people, even if I brought my whole self to work and, you know, my favorite color is pink and my keys are pink, my phone's pink, my water bottle, my coffee mug, a bunch of things are pink. And I think as a grad student, that's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but as a scientist, I'm sure to people, yeah. I'm sure, Georgie, you look so feminine, your hair's so blonde. And if you show up in all pink, I'm sure they would think, oh, you're just a silly girl Yeah. yeah. and you can't anything and what do you know about science yeah
0: are they gonna take me seriously because i look like a schoolgirl? maybe you can't tell but i did dye my hair a little bit pink and now it's purple and i'm just like (laughs) well i don't know what this is doing (laughs) for my perception but right now it doesn't matter but i do think about showing up to get job interview and i'm like what happens if i have purple hair Yep.
1: Yeah, and these, Ali and I refer to these as performative contortions. All these ways that really talented people have to contort themselves just to gain the bare minimum of legitimacy yeah. and competence.
0: Based um, on like aesthetics.
1: Of, <laughs>
2: yep. Yeah, God. like aesthetics or even having any kind of neurodivergence in God. the workplace. Yes. Hmm.
0: Something else I've been thinking about a lot because I've been listening to a podcast called Maintenance Phase, mm is that people who are fat are discriminated against yes. and especially women who are fat there's a certain weight for men like it takes a while for their weight to top them out in a career or pay but for women it's almost immediate yes and Always then easy. add that to being a person of color yeah absolutely and then what you're a Perception. woman and you're fat and
2: uh. yeah i've had fat that- women friends in the workplace and they've told me like they have to look so immaculate at all times because mm-hmm. they don't want to
0: be the messy fat
2: person yep yep they have to be fashionable their makeup has to be done their hair has to look incredible
0: mm-hmm. they don't
2: yeah it's... yeah they can't show
0: up in sweats yeah. yeah no they
2: don't have the luxury of having an ugly day or having a messy day
1: yep yeah Or s- triggering stereotypes that they're not competent again lazy Mm-hmm. And again, none of these things have to do with talent. Yeah. And that's what's, I mean, we're just losing sight of what matters the ability to be creative, the ability to be innovative, the ability to collaborate productively with other people. All of these things that are of value to all of us and all our organizations depend on a level of inclusivity that yeah. is missing.
0: When you see these CEOs who are of, diverse backgrounds or marginalized identities, when they're in that position, have they expressed that the culture has shifted at all, that they've been able to hire more people? Because that's maybe one of the goals is to make it so instead of being the only woman of the company, it's half and half plus other gender diversity. Or if you're the only black person at a company, at least you're able to hire on other people who look like you or have the same background, who are understanding. Do Do you see that at all?
1: Yeah. We asked about this specifically and the, and the answers, it's complicated because mm. one of the things we heard from folks is that when they are the only woman or they are the only black woman or they are the only Latinx man, they're under such scrutiny, especially when they're appointed during a time of crisis and all eyes are on them. And mm. you know, The level of scrutiny is such that many of them told us, and this was disheartening, though maybe not surprising, that that level of scrutiny meant that when they were doing hiring and promotion for their teams, if they were to hire someone like them, the assumption would be that
0: they had an agenda. Ugh, that is complicated so and messy complicated. and yeah. horrible. Yeah.
1: So so we heard a lot. For example, we talked to a woman, really, really, really senior executive at her company who said, I can hire all the mediocre men I want and no one will say a word. But if I hire a woman that isn't a star, yeah. everybody assumes I lowered my standards to to get her in. So what she said, and I'm grateful that she was willing to acknowledge this, that her bar for women is so much higher, Ugh. which it makes sense. And it's disheartening. And it also suggests that these folks are really limited in their ability to yeah. to enact.
0: They're in such a tight change. corner.
1: Yeah. Now, we've done quantitative work that actually suggests that having better representation, especially among leadership, does lead to organizational change and Hmm. transformation, but not necessarily at the individual level. And I remember the Indra Nooyi, former CEO of PepsiCo, stepping down, she's being interviewed by the New York Times. And they say, what have you done? You're a woman of color in this really high visible role. What have you done to appoint other women or to promote other women? She says, you know, men CEOs never get that question. Yeah. We just let them off the hook. Yeah. Why aren't we asking every white man CEO, what are you doing to diversify your team? And what is the evidence?
0: <laughs> I'm happy to say that I See that a lot here at Utah State University right now. And I don't know if that's just because DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is a fun fad. Mm -hmm. I would be sad and also I'm happy about it if it is a fad because that means things are actually being done, but we'll see how long it lasts. So, the second question that I had for you was what are some of the findings that you've gathered from your research? On diversifying gender and race in leadership roles, and how that could or is impacting the workforce. Like, are you finding that? It sounds like to some degree you are.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We representation matters, and one of the things that Allie and I are really committed to, in at least the stream of, of research, is you know what works. Mostly, what we see is stagnation, yeah. <laughs> and the status reproduction of the status quo, but. We're really interested in what works. So we've done a pretty wide range of studies that clearly show representation matters. It's not enough, though. Yeah. Representation matters, especially in certain kinds of contexts. We need to accelerate that progress. Yeah. It's, it's happening too slow. So, for example, we found that representation on organizational boards really matters. Mm. Because it's boards who hire. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And we've kind of tried to fine tune our analyses. So for example, we had a study where we analyzed not just overall board representation, but on specific committees, on in leadership in specific committees. So executive compensation, the wage gap in executive compensation is really robust and it's really mm-hmm. hard to address. Yeah. Uh, and so we wanted to see if actually having representation on the compensation, com- not just on the board then the compensation committee, and then chair of the compensation committee. And we actually found that when women chair the compensation, and this is over many, 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 many hundreds of companies over time, when women chair the compensation committee on the board, the executive wage gap disappears. Hmm. And having a large effect disappear is, for data nerds, is pretty
0: cool. Disappear is such a, I don't know, stark word, such a big word. Yeah.
2: you're saying that you're noticing that when there's more group of women in charge, it, and it's creating more equitable workspaces?
1: Yeah. So their board representation, not much effect. Membership on the compensation committee, a little effect, but actually the influence. So in other words, representation when combined with influence, mm. that seems to be kind of a magical combination that you can't... I think too often when we think about diversity, it's kind of one and done. Yeah. Yeah. Or two for you know, like two women, oh wow, we're uh, but black
2: and gay exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> but a lot of those folks in token positions, and I don't use token to mean these positions don't matter, they don't matter, but, yeah, but when it's just the one or maybe two only, oftentimes those folks in those positions are denied influence. Yeah. So for example, when when women are CEO, unlike men's CEOs, they're much less likely to be chair of the board, which significantly reduces their influence. Yeah. But when you have representation and influence, that seems to be kind Okay. Of really so going critical. hand in hand, that's yeah. the
0: thing. That makes a lot of sense.
2: How can we create more inclusive spaces? Is it is it something that's purely on a top-down level? How can we create this organizational change?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question, Mary. Our work on trans and non-binary folks in the workplace is kind of cool in the sense that we're finding a really strong effect for policy. We've done a series of papers using the U.S. Trans Survey, which is just this fantastic resource that allows us to understand trans workers and the challenges they face, but also allows us to analyze trans men, trans women, and non-binary gender queer folks, which is really unusual. There's very little data We have great qualitative data, great qualitative studies, but really not a lot of nationally representative survey data that allows us to disaggregate the experience of queer non-binary folks as distinct from trans men and trans women.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how you would start to get that information. Granted, I don't know how you'd get any of the data that you've been talking (laughs) about. I'm thinking about when you fill out any paperwork when you're starting a new job and how many people would just put woman if they're yeah. a trans woman yeah or oh yeah like i don't i don't want to identify i don't no work.
2: no way that's not so, like, I don't care how safe it
0: is. and like for yeah. me usually there's two options right or there's another uh, <laughs> an other option yeah. <laughs> and i i'll usually just pick woman because it's yep. it's easy yep. and that's there and there's not one that's like, but again, mostly you're... femme, but like sometimes <laughs> yeah. masculine. and doesn't like the binary, like that's yeah. not an option. Super fluid, <laughs> yeah, <What is>
2: gender.
1: <laughs> oh, survey. Most well, surveys are so inadequate, yeah, when it comes to gender.
2: So I, I, w- I was working on this film set, and we had this party last night, and and so many trans folks on the on the crew. It was so beautiful, and and everyone was crying last night, talking about how beautiful it was to be in a space. Mm. And, this is one of the first working spaces we've all been in where we're all affirmed and we Mm -hmm. don't have to hide our gender and we can just fully be present and accepted and just be our most authentic selves. Mm, So beautiful. And that's so important. It it was so important and it made the art so much better and it made the working space so much better. No matter how stressful and agonizing and grueling it was, it was just a really beautiful, safe space, especially Mm -hmm. for I would consider myself more in the fluid, non-binary scale, Mm -hmm. but the truly trans folks, it was really beautiful to, especially the people who were more recently out, to be like, wow, thank you for affirming me like this.
0: And like this space exists, which means that my existence is is valid.
2: (laughs) It's so important. I deserve to be here. I deserve
0: to make art. Oh, I'm so glad you were part of that.
1: (laughs) I love it. And you said it, Mary, that's the context in which we do our best work.
0: Mm -hmm. And then thinking of all the CEOs that you were talking about who... Their talent is squished, just like yeah. they are in that corner. Yeah. Mary, something that you said is what is gender? I wish that was a box that we could tick. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> should just say I D K what is gender. Yeah. <laughs> With the shrug emoji, yes. I would like to see that on the next survey I take. Yeah. Um, simply next time we'll just like put a shrug.
1: <laughs> There's some really good, good, good kind of pressure to change how surveys work mm-hmm. in this way because, well, so, so the U.S. Trans Survey is really the first survey that we have that
0: has actually done
1: this, right?
0: And sorry, the U.S. Trans? Trans Survey. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I don't actually know what this is.
1: Yeah. So it's the first nationally representative survey survey. Of American trans folk the first wave was 2015 the second wave was collected in 2020 and that's gonna be released in 2024 so cool for the first time we'll be able to evaluate how progress have yeah wow. yeah
0: and I assume 2025 is the next launch of the survey? yes
1: yes so this is just a goldmine for understanding It's not specific to work, but it has some of the most deep dive into the work lives of trans and non-binary folks that we have. And so we've been able to ask questions that we could never ask before. And one of the questions we wanted to know is, under what conditions do trans and non-binary folks have agency to seek recourse when they face workplace hostility, harassment, discrimination, and bias? the evidence of bias and harassment and even assault at work among trans folks is incredibly high. And rates of unemployment, joblessness, and precarious work are so high among this community. And we haven't before really had the data to understand who's most impacted.
0: Yeah,
1: Even when we do have data on LGBTQ and surveys, we glom everyone in the same category. And that's not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? That's just, <laughs> just not, not, how not
0: how it works. <laughs> not helpful.
1: Conflating sexuality and gender identity and gender performance and all these things are assuming wow. this is a, a homogenous community is useless. Yeah. So we've been a- able to ask the question, well, when folks do experience hostility and harassment at work,
0: what recourse do they have? Are you part of that, making the questions for that survey? No, no. Oh, okay.
2: am no, part <laughs> of analyzing.
0: Have you found anything yet? Like what
2: recourse do they have?
1: We've identified two patterns. So when you do experience extreme Forms of workplace bias, harassment, hostility. Two patterns. One is you talk to a lawyer, you call the EEOC, you proactively use your agency to rectify this unlawful behavior. The other pattern is you turn inwards and you mm. and you try and reduce the scrutiny you experience as not you know gender nonconforming. So detransitioning or failing to ask people to use the right pronouns or.
0: Even though I knew you were going to say that, it still makes me so sad to hear. It does so So much harm.
1: It does so much harm. And one of the factors, though, that empowers folk to be proactive in protecting their rights is the presence of state policies specifically Mm. targeted at this community. And. That's encouraging. Yeah. It's encouraging because it means policy matters, both employer policy and state and local policies, anti-discrimination policies. So it's easy to think, oh, those laws, we have formal laws in place, but do they really matter on the ground? And our research shows that they really do matter.
0: Yeah, which makes me feel sad knowing about all the policies going through to discriminate and harm the health and well-being yeah. of transgender youth. Yeah. That's... Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah the, we, we conclude the paper with a call to arms. Yeah. We really have to hold the line on these nationwide wave of anti-trans policies because our research is so clearly demonstrating that protective policies matter in a big way. Yeah. And we don't have
0: the option of rolling those back. No. Yeah. I wanted to quickly talk about what I know about surveys and asking about gender on them. And then I have a question about a specific paper that you had. Cool. But Mary, I also want to give you an opportunity to hop in with anything you have.
2: I think we're all caught up on my questions, actually. I just am devastated. Mm. Yeah. I have the ability to gather every trans person
0: mm.
2: and fiercely protect them.
0: Amen. Yeah. Especially kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's why you I would know, love how to we do the work Let's, we do.
2: Yeah, I feel like I, it's really so easy for me to get discouraged, but then I think it's these small interactions. It's like standing up for one person and being really aggressive about their pronouns. It's if you can do one thing for one person, it matters. It mm-hmm. really matters.
0: Yes. Yeah, and yeah. any time you can display that or your, your sticker that you have—those yeah. things actually well, add up and signal things and it does. tell people. It seems people, small,
2: but yeah, you're, you're normalizing it. it. Absolutely, yeah, Christy. I'd love to hear about this paper you're
0: working on. Okay, well, before I jump into that, I wanted to say. So I took a class with Jessica Shad. Oh, survey master. Yeah, yeah, she. She taught survey methods. She is the survey master. She's really fun to work with. I like her. She's on my committee, which is great for me, hopefully for her too. But when we were talking about how to ask the gender question, because, you know, I'm like, let me push all the buttons. (laughs) Let me... And there are other really great students in the class too. They're wondering how to do it. And the discouraging truth is that depending on how you ask that question to certain populations, people will just stop there Mm -hmm. and they won't answer anything else. It's usually, you know, all demographic questions on a survey you put at the end because you're going to be asking about age, gender, race, ethnicity, income those things and people can be really sensitive about that stuff i find the more liberal you are the less sensitive you are but still sometimes age is a thing like i've been taking surveys as a grad student and people are always like oh you're not gonna have my age on there and i'm like yeah i have up to 200 so you're (laughs) fine (laughs) so it's just like i hear that joke all the time can we stop joking about how being old sucks you're smarter than i am that's a good thing But I get why it's beauty standards and it's not good. But thinking about gender, if you have male, female, or what I've been recommended to use is prefer to self-identify instead of other, because you're like literally othering somebody. It's like prefer to self-identify. And that's still only three. And again, I don't know if I would pick prefer to self-identify because (laughs) what is gender? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Strug emoji. And then if you add all these other ones, Jessica... Shad does this all this work with ranchers in Utah and rural Utah, and I'm sure that even like prefer to self-identify. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> pinko
1: commies. Yeah, on their surveys. Yeah,
0: like these liberal academics. <laughs> I don't trust them. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's just my two piece. Yeah. Yeah. What I love about
1: critical survey research right now is its best practices are constantly evolving and I'm Mm -hmm. really excited about this. I think right now my understanding is first use gendered terms, not sex terms. So moving away from male, female to man, woman. Being inclusive in your categories, knowing your population, mm-hmm. knowing who you're targeting is important. And every survey is a reflection of the population from which you're sampling. The survey has to reflect that. Don't ask questions you're not going to use or that aren't important. Don't ask people to disclose really sensitive information, sensitive information if it's not relevant yeah. to, to what you're trying to study. But also thinking about individuals' gender as not being able to be encapsulated in a single question yeah so for example one of the things that annoys me is the attempt to be inclusive by saying man woman trans man trans woman. yeah you're like
0: oh no no, no 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 <laughs> no trans men and men are they're all men yes, yes trans men <laughs> are men no, but yeah. who's asking And what context yes. are we in yes. yeah and you also don't want to be like what was your gender assigned at birth yeah. and what gender do you identify you as now, now? Yeah. and then on top of that i think what a lot of people think they're getting after with a gender question is sexuality. That's right. That's right. And yes, so so, so
1: separating all these things, right? Asking about gender separately from asking about do you identify as trans, but only asking that so, so that folks can say I'm a man. Mm-hmm. And yes, I identify as trans, right? Yeah. But also not asking those things of folks it's such a low bar do no harm
2: yeah <laughs> do not yeah, do like harm I, I had to go to the emergency room recently not for me but for someone else hmm. and i'm like admitting them and they're like what is your gender and i'm like oh shoot uh they're technically assigned male at birth but she's a, a female like you must use she her Yes. yeah and, and yeah I'm like, why wait like what why are you asking for like why what's the context uh yeah why
0: yeah, is they, this important and
2: yeah i'm like if it is important that's good to know but like are you at
0: yeah yeah it yeah. was just it
2: like really like stalled me for a second yeah yeah, yeah. i don't I know how to how to
0: answer that medical community is navigating that because that's yeah that's it was, tricky I, it was so
2: great to like test them in the moment to be like you're wearing your little trans flag but are you going to actually be really nice to my trans friend? Yes. And be weird. <laughs> yes. And, and
0: they, were, they were delightful. That's uh. good. That's good to hear. Well, yeah, for folks who <laughs> take surveys that academics give you, not, not in the medical setting because I know nothing about that, know that <laughs> it's all weird and the people giving you the survey probably didn't make it. And if they did make it, they're trying things out. They're learning, too. So yeah. just take the survey because it's really helpful. But... <laughs> Moving on to my question that I have for you on a paper of yours. Can you tell us about the paper in progress titled Sex Work and the Precarity of Trans Lives, a labor process analysis? And maybe it's not in progress anymore, but I I I, I assume it is.
1: It was just published online oh. like last week, week before. Wow. So it's yeah, hot off the presses. <laughs> um, well
0: congrats on the <laughs> publication. <it's-
1: laughs> Yeah, this was part of the the kind of series of papers on work and labor that we've been working on with a team at USU. There's lots of research or there's lots of evidence that trans folk are disproportionately represented among sex workers. And sex work is work, Mm -hmm. but it's also precarious. And so to understand the full picture of the precarity of trans lives in the context of work and labor, we wanted to understand how workplace, formal workplace bias, harassment, hostility contributes to engagement in in precarious forms of sex work for trans and non-binary folks. We wanted to understand, in other words, how exclusion from the formal labor market is a pathway into other precarious forms of work for trans people. So we analyzed how Either being denied work because you're trans or non-binary or being fired from a job because you're trans and non-binary contributes to engagement in precarious forms of sex work.
0: Yeah. And I like the distinction that you have is precarious forms of sex work because yeah. there's sex work that is shooting porn, which That's is right. legal. And I'm sure the word precarity comes in here because there are legal and illegal forms yeah. and because certain types of sex work is illegal, that makes it so much more dangerous for a person to engage in because there are no regulations around it. And because the consequence, of course, is much higher. There's no consequence to well, there, I'm sure there are consequences to shooting porn, but you won't get thrown in jail.
1: That's right. That's right. And there are more and more forms of sex work, internet-based sex work, mm-hmm. that reduce some of the precarity, right? Your, yeah. At least physical safety. And in some cases, they can be very economically lucrative. Trans people tend to be denied access to those forms of sex work just as another layer of bias and social exclusion. So we were able to trace the way, especially for trans women and non-binary folks, extreme forms of exclusion from the formal labor market are this kind of pathway into precarious forms of sex work. Mm -hmm. So again, just another way of being able to document How employer discrimination and bias contributes to precarity for trans folks, not just because of unemployment and not just because of having to manage hostility when you go to work every day. And not just in terms of being relegated to more part-time or low-wage jobs, but also for increasing your engagement in really dangerous forms of precarious labor. Yeah. In other words, you know, the the stereotypes about trans folk and sex work are really misguided <laughs> and transphobic really. Yeah. What we're actually showing is that unless we get really serious about reducing employer bias and bigotry, unless we make the formal labor market inclusive and welcoming to trans folk. Uh, shutting off opportunities for the folks in the trans community yeah. to live.
0: It's putting people in a hard place. That's right. And some people choose rightfully their choice to engage in sex work. And some people have less options. And so it's less of a choice. That's
1: right. That's right. It's a means of survival.
0: Yeah. And that's scary. It can get really dangerous very yeah. fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think about a person I knew a while back who is trans and we worked essentially the same job and then I found out they got paid so much less than me and they were somewhere else they didn't have a functional car and to get home that was an option for them in order to get a ride home and at the time that was really appalling for me and you know they said it very nonchalantly and like wow yeah Yeah. that's the world that I lived in 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 Utah and it's you know that's just the truth everywhere and it's really that's hard for people
1: yeah am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Fuck it. Okay. What the fuck are we doing? Right? <laughs> because what, we, what do we know about trans and non-binary folks? They, they're they less likely to have parental support, right? They're less likely to have parents who can support them until they get mm-hmm. on their feet. They face extreme forms of discrimination and bias in the educational system. Mm-hmm. Right? So from, from K-12 all the way through college. So they're less likely to be able to find a community and support through their educational process. They get to work. And they face hostility and harassment and exclusion from the labor market. And then what? Yeah. What what world are we building for trans kids to be able to flourish? And instead of recognizing these challenges and moving towards solutions, instead, we're punching down and yeah. continuing mm-hmm. to take away things like sports, which could yeah. be an avenue to inclusion for trans kids.
0: Right. It, it blows my mind. The one like a place where. Yeah. You can feel so in your body and so part of a community and have so much fun where the stakes are zero. Yes. (laughs) It's like, no, let's take that away from them. Yes. We
1: should have campaigns in every community around this country to get more trans kids in sports. Yeah. More trans Mm -hmm. kids in extracurriculars. More trans kids in, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And instead... We're, in the name of fairness, removing even these avenues that could allow trans kids to build an identity in a community that allows them to
2: flourish. where it's just, it's madness. It's like nefarious westernization. It's really gross.
0: Well, yeah, well said. I want to plug Rock Camp. Ooh, what's Rock Camp? There's one in Salt Lake, so that one is SLC Rock Camp. But it's a thing that happens across the United States I'm pretty sure there's a past podcast episode on this pod about it but it's rock, it was originally rock camp for girls but then they had some of their the participants transition or come out as Fluid or non binary, and they're like, Am I still welcome here? And they're like, Oh my God. And so they changed the name, but it's for youth and it's run by folks of marginalized gender who play instruments. And they really talk about like, usually when you see a female or a woman in a band, they're singing. How often do you see them as the lead guitarist? Mm -hmm. And they have stats on this for the big bands. And so they're like, Yeah, we. We just take these kids in and it's a week and they teach them how to play. So you don't really come in knowing how to play. Some, I'm sure do, but they teach them how to play. They give them an opportunity to form a band, get costumes, have a band name, write a song, and then perform it.
2: Amazing. And they're
0: with all these queer women, fat queers, and just this representation so that you get to come in and then you get to scream your truth on stage (laughs) with instruments. So much. So, plug for that. If you, wherever you are, rock camp is probably a thing in One of the bigger cities near you So check it out, it's so cool Love it, yes we need more of these spaces
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, All our spaces need to be These spaces
0: Yeah, And thinking about, you said the stereotype of Trans folks And sex work, there is absolutely A stereotype and that's portrayed a lot In media and movies There's the documentary Disclosure Uh, Laverne Cox I think directed it And if she didn't direct it She had a lot to do with it And she's in it a bunch. And it's so good talking about how transgender folks have been represented in film, whether it's just the idea of a trans person Mm -hmm. or, like, actual trans characters. And something that I think about a lot is, what's that Jim Carrey movie with animals? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What? Dolphins? Ace Ventura. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The end of that movie, from Disclosure, the documentary, there's... A, a trans man and he's like yeah i used to love that movie and i rewatched it as an adult and the end the conclusion is 20 people throwing up because they realized that this woman has a penis and it depicted in like most unrealistic way and like how dare you deceived us and then all of them are just throwing up and they're like oh my god my it's favorite movie that i watched as a kid.'"
2: Oh. That you see in TV and film, and you realize, like, where did this internalized homophobia or mm-hmm. transphobia come mm. from? Like, oh, it's these. It's these little jokes that we've watched as children. It's so subtle to put that phobia in your head.
0: Yeah, I'm hopeful because things like that are being more and more discussed. And I hope that parents are having discussions with all sorts of movies (coughs) like, oh, hey, you you really love this movie. Well, let's talk about this one weird joke in it. People are still going to love movies that have nostalgia for them, but we do need to talk about the impacts that yeah. those think talking about conscious <clears throat> content consumption. So yeah.
1: name it, call it out.
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, discuss yeah. it. Flag it. Misogyny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so normalized. It's in the air we're breathing right now. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, almost literally. I th- I think about this all the time. You know what's happening with the Great Salt Lake? What's happening to our air quality? Mm. These wicked problems that are making the Wasatch Front uninhabitable, including for children. Right. So if we really care about children's well-being, but our legislature, legislators, just yeah, air, water, the poisoning of our land, but no trans kids.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> that's it, the real. Thing. It's like, yeah. well, we want these all of these kids to be born, regardless yeah. of the health of <clears throat> the parent. and uh, and that's it. We just yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: pop Stop them out there.
0: I we think that's we care it. about that's kids
1: it. so much in the state that we let them breathe toxic air mm-hmm. and don't see that as a problem. And
0: for the benefit of. I mean, when you're really looking at it, it's the people who are profiting off of the fact that the lake isn't getting the water levels that it needs. And, you know, for not just thinking about the dust that will be coming off this dried lake bed, this drying lake, but the pollution from cars and the refinery. The refinery that, I don't know if either of you know this, but this broke my heart when I learned it. The refineries are on what used to be this... Network of hot springs, natural hot springs that were important to I don't know what tribe. the way that people colonized Utah mm.
2: so disgusting. Yeah, the way that they destroyed this land. Mm. I'm not going to name names, but
0: we all know who colonized yeah. this place. <laughs> yeah, it's really disgusting. hard and it's heartbreaking. And I wonder how far from other colonizing stories it is. I can't imagine it's too far, and I can't imagine I know That's it's kind not of the worst colonizers. one.
2: If you go in and you destroy the land and yeah. you kill the indigenous people and you like insert your like we're seeing it right now in Israel. Yeah. Like we're seeing you go in and you kill the people. You salt the earth. I actually just posted this on our stories. They're salting the water right now in Gaza. So they can't drink the water and so that the land will be infertile oh forever. Oh, my God. That's what they're doing right now.
0: Oh, my God. Was... Yeah. No,
2: like it's it's disgusting. It's horrible horrifying and like this is a colonizer tactic is to destroy the land so you can't do agriculture anymore yeah. make it
0: uninhabitable
2: mm-hmm. make it uninhabitable
0: yeah God, we just keep hearing these stories and let making life uninhabitable whether it is the workplace yeah. whether it is a country or a territory whether it's the air yeah. or the water sports mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's that's a lot and so i'm yeah and i think that's all we're wanting is to make a safe inhabitable yeah life
1: well and it it just raises for me too the question of how can we build community in this environment mm-hmm. how do we nurture values of care
0: yeah community care are you seeing mm-hmm. in your research ways that that's effectively working or if for a workplace environment, because that's specifically what you're looking at. Yeah.
1: I'm I'm pretty cynical about the ability to build sustainable communities in private workplaces under mm. capitalism. <laughs> but,
2: uh, but I agree, Christine. Yeah. But also sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no please. It feels like the workplace it's the onus is on the individual. Yeah. Like I've seen I've seen beautiful community happen, but it's because you as like the lowest level employee Yeah, are going out of your way to make a safe space and be extra kind and go the extra mile to be there for your people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. It's not
2: an organizational structure thing. It's you as a person are creating the safe space.
1: Yeah. And, And I, you know, I still believe in unions. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a model of unionization, social movement, unions, social movement, union organizing that, is really attentive to connecting with communities and expanding beyond the workplace, touching faith-based communities, touching Mm -hmm. community organizations, community leaders, and creating broad partnerships to organize around things that matter for workers, but that matter for communities too. And there's some evidence, and I'm really excited about this stream of research. Mario Suarez in our College of Education here at Utah He's so cool. I want to get him on here. I'm kind of a co-author on a paper he's written with Folks, His research team, national research team, where they focus on teachers, where they find that teachers, trans teachers in a union are so much more likely to stay in the job and flourish. Hmm so this huge trans effect so i'm really excited and that it was both surprising and not surprising teachers unions have gone really far in adopting this social movement union model which is more intersectional more inclusive again more engaged with progressive community organizations and if that's translating into this really incredible a fact for trans workers, I'm excited about yeah. that. And unions can be a place, haven't always been, but can be a place of true solidarity and mutual care. And- of
0: union? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah union. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you should see Mary's face. <laughs> she That is very funny that I said that. Well, that's a nice positive note to hold in the air after thinking about just how heavy, not just right now, but through history, these issues have been. There are three more questions that we officially wanted to ask you, and maybe we'll just dive in. Sure. So speak about the recent study you were part of barriers. Well, this goes right into what we were talking about. Barriers to advancement findings from the 2020 study of gender and racial bias in Utah's legal profession
1: yeah this was a this was a statewide study uh survey and interview study of law in Utah. We wanted to understand where Utah is in terms of inclusion and equity from law school through the career. And our findings were really frustrating, depressing, discouraging. (laughs) Was
0: this published in the Tribune a few times? It was. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it really discouraging. Practicing law in Utah is a pretty hostile terrain. If you're a woman, especially a woman with children, or if you're a man or woman of color, or if you're queer, this is a hostile environment to build a career. If you're not a white dude. Yeah. In fact, what we learned in the course of the study was Utah's unique nationally in its family friendliness. Laws notorious for being hostile to people who have any kind of care responsibilities outside of the workplace. Utah's unique in that there's things like flex time and flexible hours and work from home have been normative for longer than in other places, but for men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so there's no definition that I hold of being life or family friendly that doesn't yeah,
0: that
2: excludes <laughs> most it, people. No. <laughs> yeah. It yeah, is old crusty white guy friendly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But there's Not good work there's friendly. good work being done. So I'm I'm working with an organization, the Utah Center for Legal Inclusion, and we're really committed to opening up law school, facilitating access to law school for first gen students, for BIPOC students,
2: That's queer cool. students. Yeah. So so from well, the ripple of of that, yeah, like to be represented by a lawyer who you see yourself in, mm-hmm. yes, the effects of having more diverse lawyers on the population, yeah, that's incredible, too, mm-hmm. yes,
1: I mean. Any conversation about law enforcement and criminal justice yeah. is a conversation about whose perspectives and whose voices are being represented and, in the system. And
0: who's valued in yes. the system. Yes.
1: What bodies are valued? What bodies deserve justice? What mm-hmm. bodies get justice? So from supporting law school entrants all the way through building a career, right now we're working on a survey of LGBTQ plus and BIPOC students who graduate from Utah Law School. So U of U and BYU are only two law schools. But then leave... Utah to build a career somewhere else. We want to understand why. Yeah. And, and we want to understand how we can retain that talent in Utah. The two law schools, even BYU, the students enrolled and graduating are much more diverse than the legal profession. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of talent drain yeah. happening. And we want to understand why and how we can work to retain
2: yeah. more diverse talent. I can think here. of
0: so many reasons why they're leaving, yes. <laughs> including their quality. <laughs> well, that's, I feel like we could talk about that forever, but maybe we should just keep moving forward. One question that I'm interested in is what research project has been your favorite to work on?
1: Oh, good question. (laughs) I can't pick. You know, the truth, I really can't pick. And the reason is what I love about research is two things. Collaborating with great people, mm-hmm. students and colleagues. I just, I thrive in a supportive team. Yeah. And it wouldn't matter if I were an academic or if I did mm-hmm. anything else. I do my best when I'm in a team of people who come from different perspectives and bring different skills and ideas. That's my sweet spot. And I love writing. I work <laughs> with such good, I'm yeah. I'm so picky about, I, I had some really kind of abusive experiences Experiences early in my career with collaborators. And so I'm so spoiled now because my collaborators are my community.
0: Yeah. And well, the topics that you're picking, too, the people who are passionate about those, yeah. I mean, they just have to be awesome. You mentioned Mario. It sounds like yes. Allison Cook is great. I know yes. you're working with Jesse Shercliffe yes. and
1: Brooke Hutchinson. Brooke, yeah. Brooke is so
0: cool. Yeah, so um, cool.
1: Guadalupe Marquez Falarde, oh. also Mario's partner, actually.
0: Yeah. So I just work with the coolest people. Yeah. And, uh, people. People who care a lot. And yeah. I mean, that's why I went into environmentalism. Yeah. And I'm sure, Mary, that's why you love acting.
2: Yeah, I love that. I love the environment so much. And I have nothing to do with the environment.
0: <laughs> and I love like art so much. And <laughs> I don't really do art. So um, no one fits in a box. We're all just people yeah. making community. Yeah. Yes. But if we have community, that's really important. So that's I guess that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah,
1: I love it. And, and what happens when you work with great people is they give you the freedom to take chances to take mm. risks to fail. They trust you, you trust them. So you know, you can, you have the space to do things that you couldn't do on your own. To do your best work. Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah. So I'm not a student at USU, but tell us what classes you teach. Tell us if I were an aspiring student, what classes should I take from you?
1: This spring I'm teaching gender, sexuality, and inequality. And I absolutely can't wait. It's only the second time I've taught the class. So I've completely reinvented it and new readings, new perspectives, new new themes. I just can't wait to teach it. It's a 500 level class. So I'm going to get everyone from kind of advanced undergraduates to PhD students. And so. Oh, cool. Yeah. And usually these that's
2: a fun pl- diversity of thought too. Yeah, mm. yeah,
1: I agree. And grad students from different disciplines have enrolled. It's a big class. So I have to try and figure out how to facilitate small conversations. Yeah. Small conversations within the larger class. So I just can't wait. That's really
0: cool. And I am gonna plug a thing that I've plugged in other podcasts. We were talking earlier about how your gender and diversity class, this one you just mentioned, is more about humans. And the book, Queer Ducks and Other Animals, again, you have to read it. And pulling that in, I think, could be useful because we've been told it's documented that homosexuality is a crime against nature but we see in nature tangible proof of queerness and gender fluidity same-sex sexual behavior is the term they use so and mary i think you've also read it now too yeah. i love this i love <laughs> it's just this so
1: good <laughs> i want i want to be nourished by queer ducks. And
2: <laughs> yes, and they will they'll nourish your soul and your heart and then you'll look through and you're like wait queers have always existed mm-hmm. and every timeline and every species. Yeah. We're, we've been here forever.
0: Yeah. And the history of it and the history of the documentation of it and then the erasure of it. That's yeah. all part of that book. And it's yeah. really interesting. I love that book. It's
1: great. I think the stories we like to tell about nature are more about what we think the world should look like than actual mm. nature. <laughs>
0: Well, what other classes do you teach, you know, in case someone's listening to this in the future, not just for come spring 2024, but they're like, wow, Dr. Glass is so cool. I want to take one of their classes.
1: (laughs) Take my classes. I teach social inequality, which is a required class for all sociology students. And I teach a class at the undergrad and grad level called Work Inequality in the American Dream,
0: Mm, which is
1: a semester long diatribe against the American Dream mythology.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Wow. And, I know. You
1: know, the cult of individualism, meritocracy, the and cult of individualism. Yeah. Wow. Oh tell
0: me
2: more.
1: <laughs> I know. I
0: want to take the class.
1: Yeah, I, I, I no, organize it for my it. class. And, yes, these like <laughs> myths we like to tell about who we are as a society. You know, myths of individualism and meritocracy and anything is possible and mo- the land of mobility and I we just systematically undermine these stories we like to tell about ourselves. <laughs> We're a there's very there's different country than we like
2: to pretend we are. Yeah. And if you kind of hold yourself to this American dream, you're always going to fail. Yep. Because it's
0: not possible. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> well. Well, this wow. This conversation has been, I mean, heavy at times, but I've really enjoyed it.
1: <laughs> me too. Me too.
0: Thank you for coming on. We did reschedule this at least once. So (laughs) thank you for working
2: with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. You make me want to audit. Oh, you make me want to enroll in Utah State University. (laughs) Well, if you're ever looking for
1: a
0: third co host. Count me in. We will probably talk about that (laughs) for real later. Oh, I wish I could see Mary's face. (laughs) Only I can see Mary's face for listeners because uh, we're Zooming and the screen's only facing me. So Mary just did like hand motions and blushy face.
1: Well, and Mary, I'm going to be thinking about your description of this film set because I think that you've just described what workplace justice looks like. Mm.
2: It's one of the first times I've been in a work environment Where I felt safe and supported and my full self and I could feel that energy with everyone. I could feel everyone felt safe.
0: Oh, and you deserve that. And they deserve that. I'm so happy. And like as a society and as an industry,
2: we all deserve that space. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I think we have a really good grasp on what workplace justice is not. But I want to push myself to imagine the possible possible visions of what it could be and i think what you described feeds that vision
0: yeah mary what movie is this gonna be just so folks later (laughs) can look it up of course we'll link it in the show notes it's called love one another (laughs) that sounds appropriate
2: (laughs) It does touch a lot on themes of sexual abuse and religious trauma, particularly in the Mormon church. So, if that is upsetting, I don't think this is the show for you. But it's a really powerful message. I think a lot of people are going to see a lot of themselves in this. It'll be advertised at some point. Yeah. Keep your eyes peeled.
0: Well, great. And we'll, you know, we'll definitely plug it in. If not, these show notes, probably these ones, because this won't come out for a minute. We'll plug it, for sure. Um, (laughs) And speaking of plugging is there anything I mean besides your classes that you wanted to plug for people to follow you I don't know if that's a thing for you Christy but
1: no I'm pretty I'm, I'm a ghost on social media
0: cool you I actually like have to
1: show up to
0: follow me cool <laughs> <laughs> Respect um, that. that's not an invitation for stalking but an invitation <laughs> to sign up for classes Absolutely. thank you for the read clarification the <laughs> just Please could be read do not show ways. up IRL and follow me around <laughs> 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 well, gosh do you do you have anything else you want to share?
1: No, thank you. I hope the next few weeks we're headed into the holidays. Mm-hmm. I hope the next few weeks are full of play and rest for both of you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you. And and for everybody else, you know, if you're going in the holidays, whenever this comes out or in the future, know that there are survival guides for LGBT community members. I googled it; there are many and. Some of them are repetitive, but I think they're very useful. So look them up. And with that being said, we need to thank AJ Vanzibin for the intro and outro music. And yeah, as my pops always says, use your head and be clever, everyone. And try to make this... He doesn't say this. Let's try to make the world a more livable space Mm. for everyone. Amen. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.
2: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to our episode on workplace justice with Dr. Christy Glass. In this episode, we talked a lot about legislature and policies that are making the Wasatch Front uninhabitable, so I wanted to take a moment to talk about some recent bills that, once again, have rolled back our queer rights. As of the publishing of this episode, the Utah Senate has passed House Bill 257, essentially criminalizing bathroom use in Utah for trans folks. This is the third year in a row that Utah Senate has passed legislation directly targeting the trans community. This bill changes the legal definitions of female and male, categorizing Utahns by the reproductive organs they were born with. So if you were born with a vagina slash uterus, you are considered legally female in the state of Utah. If you were born with a penis, you are legally considered a male. This law then designates bathrooms and changing rooms as gender exclusive for males and females, respectively. So that would be barring trans people from using changing rooms, locker rooms, showers, and dressing rooms that align with their gender identity. You're going to see this in government-owned and controlled facilities. So that could be state-run public education, like universities. You're also, I'm sure, going to see this in state-controlled county facilities. For example, Salt Lake County owns and operates a lot of museums and arts organizations. You could see your rights stripped away at most state-run organizations, not just government buildings. This current iteration of the bill is focusing on criminal penalties for using a bathroom or changing room not associated with your gender assigned at birth. It's upsetting to me because, as someone assigned female at birth, female bathrooms are unisex. They're just stalls. Changing rooms are unisex. It's just a room with a curtain or a door on it and a stool. There's nothing gendered about a changing room. The idea of a trans teenager being forced to disrobe in front of a group of people that they don't identify with that feels so dangerous that feels so scary there's no way to interpret this law except a direct attack on the trans community it's cruel it's senseless it's another way of making utah unsafe uninhabitable for our people for our youth our trans elders for us as a queer community at large This affects all of us. Not only have they passed criminalization against trans folks, Senate has also passed House Bill 261. This is a means to overhaul DEI programs, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in state schools and government. This feels like a step among many to erase cultural and ethnic history, as well as erase some of the meager protections we have as culturally, ethnically diverse folks. In schools and government, this bill is going to ban schools and government employers from asking job applicants for their beliefs about diversity inclusion. This bill could also result in the loss of state funding for violating that. All state schools and government entities would be required to eliminate any training on discriminatory practices, and replacing that with instruction on free speech from all viewpoints. DEI programs and offices can no longer be race or gender-based. They instead must cater to all students as generalized student success and support centers." In my day job I focus a lot on the management of the Family Medical Leave Act as well as Americans with Disabilities Act. Acronyms for those are FMLA and ADA. Whole point is giving rights to employees. In this capitalist world, there are not a lot of rights if you, your family members get sick or need care and help. So educating and empowering employees to ask for reasonable accommodations. It is reasonable to have safe access to bathrooms. It is reasonable to have accommodations met for disabilities. The passing of these laws have broader implications about representation in school and the workplace that goes for gender, that goes for race, that goes for disabilities, physical, mental, emotional. In effect, it's making it less inclusive by centering white stories representation matters and these laws aim to rid us of those safety nets this is a scary time it's really demoralizing to live in utah right now it's one of the worst states to live in if you are trans or a woman so i really encourage you to care for your trans friends and siblings right now and reach out to your local representative. Let them know that you don't stand for hate. I urge you in social education and work settings to be extra loud and advocating for your trans community. Let's all just hold each other close and be loud with our representatives. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much for caring. This has been Mary, signing off.